You're listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. episode of Chicago Writes, From Faulkner to Sister Soldier, my conversation with the critically acclaimed author of Last Summer on State Street, Toya Wolf. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. But first, a few announcements. This podcast is designed for authors and readers alike, an author's resource and a showcase for some of the preeminent contemporary and independent authors from here at home in Chicago and around the world. Visit ChicagoWrites.org. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. Registration for the 2023 Speakers Bureau is full. If you're interested in joining our CWA Speakers Bureau, look for our announcements coming in the early fall of 2024. Check out our comprehensive and exciting list of 79 original programs and 46 local presenters, plus 47 new programs touching on topics ranging from Chicago history and travel to pop culture, Latino arts, personal and professional development, as well as topics on writing, and much, much more. Visit Chicago Writes speakers underscore bureau for details or click on the link in the notes below. Since its launch in 2009, the CWA Speakers Bureau has provided CWA members a valuable opportunity to book events, build their individual platforms, and sell books while simultaneously offering event programmers a trusted resource to guide their programming efforts. But you must be a current CWA member. For submission guidelines, rules, fees, and deadline, visit chicagorights.org or click on the link below. Registration is now open for the 2023 Let's Just Write, an Uncommon Writers Conference, voted one of the best writing conferences in the U.S. by The Writer Magazine. That all happens March 25th and 26th, 2023, at the Warwick Allerton Hotel in the heart of Chicago's Loop, 701 North Michigan Avenue. Two days, 20 plus presenters, workshops, sessions, panels, and more. Your registration fee includes breakfast both days, one lunch, and a banquet dinner on Saturday night at the hotel. There is an $85 fee for any additional guests to attend the banquet dinner. Plus, we have a stellar lineup of five agents and three independent publishers, all ready to listen to your pitches for any genre. There will be craft presentations, as well as panels on everything from poetry to the legal aspects of writing, a live lit event, networking, and much, much more. Reserve your spot now. Visit chicagorights.org for complete details. Register for Let's Just Write, an uncommon writing conference from the Chicago Writers Association, March 25th through the 26th, 2023, at wildapricot.org. Wright City Magazine is currently closed for submissions, but don't worry, it will reopen again soon, which gives you an opportunity to catch up on our exclusive content. This month, featuring an excerpt from Last Summer on State Street, the critically acclaimed novel by Toya Wolf. Visit chicagorights.org and listen here for updates, announcements, and submission guidelines. Chicago Writers Association is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Toya Wolf, the author of the critically acclaimed Last Summer on State Street. First-time authors hit it big in this year's Book of the Year Awards. 
Toya Wolf scored with her novel Last Summer on State Street. A story, a perspective, a powerful voice. Toya, however, is no novice. Hardly a book about Black America. Last Summer on State Street is good and necessary storytelling. It could be set anywhere in our troubled world. Through the eyes of Felicia, Fei-Fei Stevens, we are consumed in a world at once familiar and broken, like looking at her own reflection through a shattered mirror. Her stories have appeared in African Voices, Chicago Journal, The Chicago Reader, Hair Trigger 27, and Warpland, a journal of Black literature and ideas. She is the recipient of the Zora Neale Hurston Bessie Head Fiction Award, the Union League Civic and Arts Foundation Short Story Competition, and Betty Shiflett and John Schultz Short Story Award. And Toya Wolf is one of this year's Book of the Year Award winners from the Chicago Writers Association. I need to take a breath. That was a lot. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> in I'm sorry. Last... No, it's wonderful. It's amazing. In Last Summer on State Street, Wolf writes, we will meet people, they will transform us. We will see things that will age us. That summer, we will lose ourselves. The New York Times calls Last Summer on State Street tragic, hopeful, brimming with love. Wolf's debut is a remarkable achievement, and Publishers Weekly says Wolf's arresting and atmospheric narrative comes fully realized, this is a gut punch. Her website is Toya Wolf, that's wolf with an E, dot com. Welcome to uh, to Chicago Writes, and congratulations. That's uh, that's an amazing, uh, an amazing resume. Thank you. I've been busy. <laughs> How's the book doing, by the way? You know, it, that's a very, um, that's a hard question to quantify, but I'll tell you this. I'm having some really great conversations with readers, you know, people who they're like, they would never write yeah. anything, but they are, as readers, they really enjoyed the book and meeting, you know, Fifi and her friends. It's been getting some awards attention all over the place, like mm -hmm. starting with the Chicago Writers Association. Um, so I think beyond my wildest dreams, it's doing incredibly well. Yeah. From for my a, perspective. <laughs> well, for, for a first-time novel, that's a hell of a place to start. So let, let me start start with this. This is a novel about young women coming of age in their environment, but this isn't necessarily a coming-of-age novel, right? You know, I would say it is a book about girlhood. There's definitely uh -huh. an examination about girlhood. I wouldn't even say womanhood because they're 12 years old. They're sliding into sort of tween... <laughs> tween age and even though there is there's a lot of conversation about friendship about the plight of african-americans in america mm -hmm. uh, running this through line uh throughout the novel is just sort of this relationship between these four girls and if the relationship is going to hold so yeah. i would definitely say uh, there are coming of age themes throughout the book we definitely don't want to give away the ending because it's it's a powerful ending, but you do you do kind of move the book forward in time to the point where where Fei Fei is is uh, is an adult, and and then she sort of recaps what happened to to all the friends. So I I, I just wanted to yeah. I just wanted to lay that out, which I think is which I think was was really poignant and very well done, mm -hmm. and 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 I don't want to give away too much on that, but I, I think. Does that help that that coming of age perspective? Yeah, I think the the bulk of the book takes place in the summer of 1999 when the girls right. are 12. Um, and there is sort of a slice at the end that gives you sort of a where are they now kind of thing. This wasn't the goal, but after the book was written and revised a billion times, it gave me, I thought about Stand By Me and how um, you do know in the beginning that, you know, there is an adult who's thinking back on the summer when, you know, yeah, he and his friends yeah. found, you know, found this dead body or whatever. But yeah. I think it sort of has that essence of like, we are steeped in childhood for most of the book. Mm -hmm. And then you're reminded that your narrator is in her thirties. At the end, you're reminded that like, you started out with an adult telling you a tale. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think you get the best of both worlds. You are sort of wrapped in this like, coming of age childhood story but it's told from a wiser more pulled back narrator mm -hmm. um so yeah so it's like they're, they're the people who are who really aren't into coming of age stories and then the ones who like love them and i think everybody might be happy with how it was written and i think that that brings it into the realm of of a survivor's story 
uh, and gives it that that richer that richer perspective. Uh, your your thoughts on that a little bit? I mean, laced with survivor's guilt, also, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, really, very. Um, yeah, she knows how everything turns out, and I think you hear it in the voice in the prologue that mm-hmm. it's very sort of nostalgic. She's very haunted by you know things that happened and has regrets, but also mm-hmm. has memories of the good times. So it really is um, not one specific thing. And you don't sort of stay in one mood. It just mm-hmm. sort of, it's like the way humans are. We have feelings and we have reflections. And depending on the day, we feel a certain way about what happened. And mm-hmm. so I think that's what you're going to get from this narrator. And and again, I'm going to be purposely very vague about this because it's such a poignant, powerful part of the update of the friends, mm-hmm. the, uh, the story of Tanya and the yeah. photograph that her mother shares with, with Feifei is just, it's just heart-wrenching. It's just so, it's just so powerful and and a beautiful, beautiful perspective. The first conversation that I ever had with my wife in war-torn Sarajevo was about books. Uh, I asked her what her favorite books were, and she immediately answered Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer, both <laughs> maybe, maybe the first coming of age uh books and i asked her if they translated well into her language and she she said sure uh, they're they're written in the language of kids and kids are the same the same everywhere i couldn't help wondering if you think that this is a a book that that young women or young girls should read to gain that that greater life's perspective I think it's a book that everyone should read. Yeah. Definitely there is a book, there is this conversation about girlhood and friendship and loyalty, uh-huh. but uh, Fifi's brother, his storyline is running behind the the story of the group of girls. There's also like an example of four different parenting styles, like these four different mothers and how they approach parenting. Yeah. There is, um, there's a conversation about housing and public housing and appropriate housing and treating people like people and so i just think there's so many things that will definitely trans translate into different cultures and languages and time periods and i i just feel like there's a little bit of something for everyone um as much as i wanted to i wanted a narrator who had a sort of feminine lens that I had growing up so I wanted to make sure that even though most of the books written about the projects they like follow little boys in their plight I wanted to make them I wanted to get put them in the background but still tell their stories very fully realized but Mm -hmm. there was an opportunity to really lean into a girl's perspective because I don't think we have enough sort of variation. So to answer your question, I definitely think girls don't often get to see themselves in literature and in yeah. film in a very um, varied way. And so I definitely think little girls of color, they will f- perhaps see themselves in this book. And for that reason, I definitely think we should be putting this book into the hands of little girls and teenage girls. But I think anyone who cracks this book open, there's something for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to kind of kind of move through some of some of the tools that you use to tell the story. First of all, there's there's a a very strong faith subtext, which uh, which even indicates a level of frustration within the community about gangs and poverty and indifference uh, and racism, uh, the police, crime, and and drugs. Am I am I reading that? correctly? Oh, all of that's going on. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I found this conversation between Feifei and and Tanya, where Tanya was forced to find food after her mother began smoking crack, especially heartbreaking. Um, This is part of that conversation uh, or revelation maybe uh, between Tanya and Feifei. We never had no food in the refrigerator. How do you eat? I asked. At school, that's the only food that you get at lunchtime? She shook her head from side to side. I go to breakfast too. And then Feifei holds out this lifeline offering to have Tanya eat at at her house. That is 
that is the epitome of of social commentary and taps into uh into this purpose of our ancient most storytelling traditions i'd love you to riff on that for a bit i grew up in this neighborhood where you know people look at um you look at a neighborhood of housing projects and if you're not on the inside you don't understand that there's still a class system even inside of the projects there are people who eat as much as they want Mm-hmm. There are people who have parents and they have no doubt in their mind that their parents love them and protect and will protect them. And that's the best currency you have in uh, a disadvantaged neighborhood. So I wanted to show these different levels of like the power dynamics within these friendships. Even mm-hmm. Stacia, whose whose mom runs the neighborhood gang, she in so many ways represents a royal family within the projects. Yeah. That gives her power um it's supposed to give her protection but it actually doesn't because people don't really know that she's affiliated with the buchanans necessarily but um what's going on with tanya and this whole like you know there's no food in her refrigerator she represents another class in the projects of people who for whatever reason their parents aren't taking care of them Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that means on a very basic level you don't have food, you don't have appropriate clothes, you know, mm-hmm. um, you don't have appropriate love, attention, affection. And so um, having these two, having Fifi and Tanya in conversation throughout the book, the times when it's just the two of them, those are the most, they're the most tender scenes I had to write between characters because I wanted to show what it, what abundance and scarcity looks like. You do have Fifi who like is very much still living in a housing project, but she's got the love of her family. She's got, she's got food. She's got people telling her she's going to be great someday. And then you've got Tanya who has none of that. So I think, um, and, and you hear about this, you hear about students who only eat at school, but I I wanted to take a beat and put that in scene and and it wasn't even intentional. I mean, honestly, I just knew this kind of character. If she had a mom who was a drug addict, that meant she didn't have a lot of things. Yeah. But I think readers who don't know this world, they finally get to see a fully fledged human who relies on the Chicago public school system yeah. for food. Yeah. Well, you you also you also create that that longer, larger timeline through through your grandmother and uh, Mama Pearl talking about the neighborhood that they moved into and what a community that they found when they first moved into the Robert Taylor homes uh, through yeah. brick structures, cast shadows on the on the block. The gardens and playground were lovely and the neighbors helped keep an eye on one another's children. Mama Pearl left the dry cleaners and moved onto the same floor as grandma. Uh, she babysat Mama and Auntie Nora and became part of our family. Over the years, she'd watch cute little kids grow up and become friends or drink themselves to death, dying in their 40s. She'd seen descendants of her friends ruin their family names one generation at a time. Th- that could be the definition of, of any community, but I, but I think to your point where, where you're talking about what in a suburban neighborhood would be hundreds of houses it's kind of confined and stacked on top of one another so you would get you would get that same inherent um spectrum uh that you would find in any community but it's just more yeah. concentrated here yeah and i think um there's something unique too about the african american community because there's such a shared history and it's um yeah and it's i I want to, the word I'm looking for is like, it's recent. So you could think about your family and and where four generations would land you, like what country it would land you in, right? Yeah, yeah. And someone who comes from like a similar community, um, they may have come over over like hundreds of years. But when you're talking about African-Americans, we're talking about like 1930 to 1945. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And because it's such a specific small timeline, these people really can keep up with each other and say like, oh, 
they're from this area in Mississippi. And like, oh, we all crash landed in Robert Taylor during this time. And so I really wanted to get that history down in this character who really is sort of the historian and really sort of notes that these people are, they have a very similar story. And then by it or not, whereas if we were talking about a neighborhood of houses in the suburbs, I just think that for whatever reason, white people may not have that very specific um, way of knowing where everybody's houses come from, what their histories are, who has similar histories. And I just think, I think we have a, um, we crash landed into Chicago for different reasons and into different spaces. Mm -hmm. And because so many have such a common, similar story, um, it really helps you to know the genealogy and the history of your neighbors. And so I really wanted to like get that down in this book. <laughs> well, you went, you went from uh, the black community went from went from the race riots here in, in Chicago at the turn of the century through the, the Great Migration. So they were kind of coming. They were coming from from one one negative circumstance into another set negative circumstance that was just slightly better enough to bring them north right yeah and even um even sort of coming off the residue of slavery and sharecropping people were running from the south because they heard it was safer here and there were Mm -hmm. jobs Mm -hmm. and that was true and false at the same time (laughs) because uh, people got here from the south and realized that there was still racism and violence and racial violence and terrorism and that there were jobs, but they were like not great jobs, you mm-hmm. know. So I I do think, yeah, it's just it's sort of leaving one bad situation for a different bad situation. Mm-hmm. But but still sort of I think it's also why African Americans um for decades have been so bound together because mm-hmm. you know, when people got here from the South and realized it wasn't what they thought, they had one another to rely on and they could adjust, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think. You find you this book is set in 1999 and I state really like early in the prologue that these girls their moms did not get along or like each other <laughs> but that didn't stop them from sort of working together in some ways raising their kids together because they do have that sort of shared history and trauma from yeah. the south you mentioned the coldest winter ever the best-selling novel by sister soldier precious yeah. is reading that novel on on the bus Last Summer is, in comparison, a much brighter novel, much more hopeful novel. Fei-Fei is, mm. is more of an every young woman, but both serve as these powerful chronicles about Im- impoverished Black communities. Uh, Fei-Fei is sympathetic, yeah. um, is more sympathetic than, than Soldier's Winter. In fact, uh, it she is she is more sympathetic or it is, or maybe the the book is more sympathetic to a community trapped inside a racially skewed system. Why that particular novel, and what purpose does it it serve in Last Summer, particularly in defining uh, the character uh, or or the or the trials for for Precious Fayface, by the way gateway into the spiritual world so there's there's kind of a a a a juxtaposition between the coldest winter ever and precious's faith right okay i would say winter winter and the world the sister soldier presents to us in coldest winter Mm -hmm. um i would say i wouldn't use the word i wouldn't say last summer is more sympathetic what i would say is Winter is less accessible to some readers. Okay. Right? And I think what what's different about my book is that I present four different girls, and then you can kind of pick and choose who makes sense to you. Like, who, <laughs> who which girl, like, you can kind of understand their world and it makes sense. And I just think that, like, we only had winter, and winter was very sort of, like, more abrasive and sort of cutthroat in her approach. But I think this book is important to these girls and it was important to um, Black girls in the Black community when it came out because we hadn't seen a character like this in literature who was growing up in sort of um, the city 
and who had a voice that didn't sound like anyone else that you'd read in literature. Like she doesn't mm-hmm. sound like Holden Caulfield. Right. And right. she doesn't, you know, it's she's a very like it's a it's a voice that's accessible to kids who are growing up in the inner city in Chicago. And okay. so I witnessed this book being passed all around. I was in college when it came out, but my little sister had the book in the house and she told me it was incredible, you know? Uh And everybody had read this book. Everybody I knew, like people you wouldn't even think, you know, they're always outside and you never see them reading a book at all. They were reading this book. So it was kind of my like, not to um, how, how incredible of a voice and like a story this was. And I wanted to write it into the book because I feel like these girls would have picked this book up and passed it around. And it's important that Precious is reading the book because Precious introduces Fifi, Precious brings Fee into her world of religion. But this is an example of how Fee is bringing her into her world of not just like, you know, Felicia's not the kid. She's, Felicia's not stationed. So she's not out doing all kinds of things that you shouldn't get into but she's also someone who wants to understand different perspectives and people's different lifestyles so i wanted that book in in the hands of precious because i knew that it was kind of like a taboo thing um she's very christian she's very conservative her family is right but i wanted this character to kind of walk Walk. This is her version of walking on the wild side. That's all you're going to get from Precious that she would read this book <laughs> by Sister Soldier. <laughs> um, it, it's it's just a, such a wonderful detail. This this book is a is a witness as well as a work of fiction. I'll cite this. Uh, I, I remember what Quan told me. The kid he called little man that he had to move because white people wanted to be closer to their jobs. His words would follow me around for years. That is a powerful statement in its own right, but. But you you kind of nuance that throughout the book. You sort of you sort yeah. of argue argue that point throughout the throughout the book. You know, because um, when you think about the chatter, like I think about the chatter that was happening over the span of some decades, like it was yeah. just this like this urban legend that all the projects would be knocked down one day. And it sounded ridiculous to some and others took heed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote it into the novel because it's a thing that would haunt a child. Like yeah. white people want to be close to their jobs. We got to move. It's just that basic. Like so much of the writing in this yep. book, I had to think about how a 12 year old would communicate. Like, I, I don't know if I ever used the word gentrification in this entire novel. Cause mm-hmm. that's not, that's not a word that um, a 12 year old would throw around. Right. And it's not very specific. When you're 12, you say things like they're going to tear down our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. or white people are coming and we got to go like it's just <laughs> very basic so yeah I think um I think that was that was important to kind of like have that laced throughout the book this sort of this thing that she heard and then she chewed on it for all these years yeah 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 no that, that was that was wonderful my wife lived through the siege of Sarajevo that's where we met but this could have been her uh so I, I'm gonna read something here but okay just to just to to put a finer point on this, violence was an aspect in in the Robert Taylor Holmes and the projects, but it, it it's it's not a defining part of the book. But it but it is but it is part of part of the reality of the book. Um, so let me let me just uh, do this. Uh, so when we descended the steps to the bus, I heard the shots, but I wasn't the Feifei who was prepared for war. I was a kid coming home from a night of lights and giggles and euphoria. My reflexes were delayed, and though I could hear gunshots, I didn't react right away. I was startled when Mama pushed us down into the grassless dirt away from the curb, whispering to stay there while she tried to cover all of us with her body. Precious started reciting the shepherd's psalm, low and aggressive, and Mama joined in. I think it's moments like that um, that describe the, the the transcendency of of this book. I've heard and I've experienced those those moments with my wife uh, in in wartime, and and I think they could be true in Ethiopia and Aleppo and Somalia and Burma and ukraine any anywhere that kids want to be kids and are are wrestled out of that experience by 
by random violence. And Bill, this is important. It's important to me because when we talk about little black kids yeah. or black people and crime, yeah. we just talk about the crime. Yeah. And rarely do we get to see what these folks have been through. Like, it's one thing to say, those are the projects over there. And mm -hmm. there is violence there. It's another to see a family or a group of friends come from like this very American thing, yeah. the fireworks, and yeah. come back home to this, yeah. a war zone, like a literal war. The language was literally, we're in war. And all that that means. And I just think like, I have not had many experiences in literature and film where I saw this broken down slowly and we were able to kind of get into the nitty gritty of what it means to live and grow mm -hmm. up in a war zone. And I just think that like for African-Americans, there's this idea that like we are made out of some tough stuff and this doesn't affect us. It doesn't affect us psychologically, even physically. We're just stronger. Mm -hmm. And I just needed these scenes so that people could understand that these kids are growing up in a place where one minute. They're looking at colors explode in the sky. And the next, they're hoping that a bullet doesn't hit them in the face. It has to be a, a bit of a of an expose on American hypocrisy or, or just the hypocrisy of the promise of a better life. And then you're always going to come back to the to the violence or the negativity or the crime or the or the indifference and neglect, right? Yeah, so much of, um, I thought it was important to get them out of the neighborhood, just so yeah, she could contrast yeah. the two. Um, yeah. I had a I had a mom uh, who would, so much of what happens downtown was part of my childhood. We would mm -hmm. go to the Art Institute and the Buckingham Fountain and just like, the neighborhood wasn't safe. Uh, so mm -hmm. I was one of those kids who got to like get out of the neighborhood. And um, I always tell people that the places in this book are very real. Even like the house mm -hmm. in Roseland, it's my aunt's house. I wrote that into the book because <laughs> I just remember the contrast of living in a housing project. And then those yeah. weekends when you would go to Roseland, before it was called the Wild Hundreds, it was Roseland. It was lovely. Uh -huh. There were houses. Kids played baseball on the street. Girls jumped double dutch in the street. And so I really wanted to kind of lay that down. Um, it really gives you these sort of Wonder Years vibes. And it's true. That's what Roseland felt like back then. Um, and so even having the girls go out of the neighborhood and come back home, I think it hits you in the chest even harder because it's like I took them to a place that people could recognize. Like maybe you've been downtown with your family or, yeah. you know, that just that just makes it makes sense that this is what we do in the city of Chicago. But then to watch them go back into their neighborhood where it's not like that at all. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of important to have that contrast of uh, spaces and and what it means to kind of like it's dangerous almost to turn off those reflexes. And that's what, that's what Phoebe's kind of like, that's her commentary that just like, she got too wrapped up and too happy. And now she's back home and she's not prepared for where she actually lives. So I, I've worked when we were, when we were doing the radio show, when I was doing the radio show with Carrie Kendall, we had anti-violence initiatives through, through the arts. We were working with the city and Theo Hardiman is a, is a, a great, great friend. So I, I come from I come from this perspective. When I would come home from um, from being at war as as an artist and a, and a civilian as a witness, yeah, I would look at gangbangers who I knew and who who would claim that they were at war with with disdain. I would even argue with them sometimes, saying that you really don't know what war is because you can go home to a refrigerator full of blah, 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 blah. So we did an anti-violence initiative with with members of the, the Black and Hist Hispanic community. And one after another, the speakers got up and spoke about PTSD and, 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 how, and how this violence had affected them which just threw the hypocrisy back in my own face because I've, I've always said that PTSD is, is, is entirely uh, an individualistic thing. So it, it, it affects everybody differently, but it affects everybody. I, I, have a, I have a brother who did two tours in Afghanistan 
and who swore up and down as his as his foot was tapping violently uh, on on the ground that he didn't suffer from PTSD. So that that was the perspective that I that I brought to to the moments of of violence and intensity in in your book. So to lay that out there, because this is this is a very very thought provoking book. Um, I would argue that there are two additional characters in the book. The uh, the wrecking ball sort of mm-hmm. comes to us as this this monster that's threatening the sanctuary of Feifei's home, along with the enlightenment as as the young woman comes of age. But it it it, it kind of feels as this this inhuman abstract monster. You know, it's funny. Um... I think about that wrecking ball. Uh, have you read As I Lay Dying by Faulkner? The um, the the kids, so these siblings are building a coffin for their mom who's dying and she has to watch them build this coffin that she's going to go into. Uh-huh. And she literally is laying in the bed dying. Like this is, the book opens and they are walking around, picking up wood and everybody has a role and they literally just building this coffin. And I think about this wrecking ball and how um, these characters are watching it, knowing that it's coming for them. It like serves yeah. as like ticking clock, like a pendulum. Like, And so I think um, it is meant to be this, um, it's meant to be the symbol of what is to come. Yeah. And as everything is happening, whether they're having a good day, jumping rope and hanging out, whether there are um, there's gang violence or whatever, this ball, it just continues swinging and knocking down this building. And so I just think um, it was meant to be a thing in the background that's mm-hmm. like a constant threat and I think they all kind of interact with it differently. There is the scene where they actually discover it one day after school, but it's throughout the rest of the book. It's just there mm-hmm. consistently. Um, it it kind of adds this weight, or it did for me, anyways. When Michi, when Michi Feifei's brother uh, joined the gang, I couldn't help but draw parallels to the hopelessness and haplessness of a virus. Um, what makes someone? healthy or emotionally healthy or someone from a good home susceptible and the 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 wrecking ball served as a metaphor for the physicality of of that that virus and that indifference uh, am i am i viewing that correctly you know when you were talking about um like the virus of this neighborhood i thought you were yeah. referring to like the gang culture and how it sort of um, infects these healthy families if there are healthy families. I, I kind, kind of see them, see them I, I kind of see them as as one into the other. I see them separately only because okay. the wrecking ball it represents sort of like this government choice to come in uh-huh. and destroy this neighborhood. Uh-huh. But then these sort of gangs they have sprung up to be a sort of ecosystem of survival and protection. Yeah. So a very strange blessing and a curse at the same time, but they serve as two totally different threats and the police are a third threat. So you've got several monsters, you know, stalking the residents of, of this neighborhood and, and how someone like Michi could come from a version of a good home in this neighborhood. He's still black. He's still male and there is just minimal protection for you when you represent those two things in this kind of neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you also say this moving, moving meant leaving our block uh, where we knew the rules. I worried about my brother switching neighborhoods as a 16 year old in the nineties. Dudes got shot all the time. If someone threw up a gang sign and it didn't return proving they were in the same the same gang. We we never think about the conventions and the culture of the place where we live, uh, and how uprooting a person from from those conventions and that culture can be traumatic. You know, this is um, when policymakers sit around a conference table yeah. and make decisions without insiders at the table. This 
this is the problem because outsiders can look at a situation but not really understand what they're looking at. And it's always so helpful to go and grab someone who can articulate what's actually happening mm -hmm. because I think if I'm going to take the most generous interpretation of what happened with the with housing projects and the demolition of, of them all, someone, maybe someone had some compassion and said, we are going to tell the, tear these buildings down, but we're going to let people move into the city and, and then we're going to have some standards because mm -hmm. even like um, section eight, like there are, there are allegedly standards for the new properties that people move into. They have mm -hmm. to like uphold, there are even inspections before people move in, that sort of thing. Right. But the thing that you don't see with the naked eye is that there's this ecosystem and yeah. that you can't throw people into certain areas because there is a very specific, like, you don't know if they're going to mesh. You don't know if that's going to cause problems for like these residents. And so I just think I definitely, I remember deciding that I wanted to have a character and show the journey of what it meant to be pressured to join a gang and how that would change his life. And without, like, I don't know all the details, so I couldn't even write it if I wanted to, but like without writing too much detail about like gang organizations, just laying out that there is an organization, there are rules to this. Mm -hmm. And when someone sort of crosses over into that world, what it means for them. So I just, I think. And how it means for their family as well, because Feifei is, is, is profoundly affected by, by her, her brother's uh, new direction. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And nobody talks about that. It yeah. literally is like your child is going off to war. You hope to see them again. And yeah. the thing that's different is that the war is happening outside your window. So I really yeah. wanted to like make to note that as well, that like it might even be worse because when someone goes off to war, you don't see them and you hope to hear from them every once in a while. Mm -hmm. But imagine if like the war is taking place before your very eyes and you get to see your child being a soldier. And like, it's it's just, I, I just think there's so many levels of devastation and I really wanted to get it all down in the story. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, the I, I spoke of two characters, the first a wrecking ball uh, as, as the sort of proverbial monster, uh, but the jump rope, becomes this this wonderful dividing line between girlhood and and womanhood and the the time spent between moments with the jump rope sort of become longer and longer extended uh and, and then and then ultimately abandoned it, it's a, it's a wonderful yeah. metaphor yeah even when the rope now just hangs on the doorknob and she bumps into it sometimes and like what yeah. how haunting that is or that it's still sort of sticky with their candied hands like their dna is on this rope you know from <laughs> from years of playing with it and so yeah and it's funny like if there are any writers listening uh this is one of those things that you pick up after you write a manuscript and run circles around it a billion times uh -huh. you notice that you planted something and you need to really lean into it hmm. because originally this rope was just they played rope with it and then it became a metaphor that's in the prologue and it became this yeah. image of like the rope swinging on the doorknob and like being a visual for time and a ticking clock and so I just think um it was there in the pages and I just sort of connected some dots and massaged it a little bit but yeah, that rope, it's, it does a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of heavy lifting. <laughs> <laughs> An important aspect of the book lies with its unique perspective. As much on issues that we struggle with uh, in, in the larger community, we hear so much about the inviolable nature of the Bill of Rights, but you say this in the book. The sweeps used to be random searches orchestrated by the CHA, but in the summer of 1999, the cops were in charge and they decided when to sweep and who to lock up. They didn't pretend to search for fugitives or act on behalf of the CHA. They came to our door and mama, still afraid that noncompliance meant eviction, always opened it. I I had this, the Schindler's List sort of memory of the, the Warsaw ghetto sweep and how those rights are just swept aside 
for the quote unquote public good or uh, uh, for crime initiatives or drug initiatives or, 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 or what have you. And because a lot of, a lot of the people who live in these projects were, were on public aid, that seems to somehow abrogate their access to, to, to human rights. Right. You know, uh, this this um this phrase there ain't no new thing on, under the sun <laughs> yeah it absolutely applies here whenever there are people in power they have a choice will they abuse that power or will they be you know humane yeah. and oftentimes people in power know they have the power and they can pull the strings and yeah. make people do whatever they want and yeah. i just think like you're saying, it's not really unique to America and Black people or people who are, you know, who have government assistance. Mm -hmm. Whenever there's someone in power above you, uh, and they, this comes up too with like sexual harassment and things like that. Whenever someone in power asks you to do something or sort of whenever they sort of make it known that they want something, there's yeah. a moment when you have to decide about all the things that are on the line and if it's worth losing them or giving in to whatever this person or these powers want. And I think that's just, it's just a great example. And it's not, um, this is another thing that's universal because you're going to have people all over the world who can relate to this, um, this situation that she's in, mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. She knows what she could do, but she also knows what the consequences are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's just one of the aspects that I think are so important about this book and and why I think... So I, I used to manage a Crown Books many, many years ago. And yeah. we used to get we used to get uncorrected galleys from publishers on books that they were excited about. And I remember getting one of those, uh, which was um, A Handmaid's Tale. Margaret Atwood. And, and I told one of my, one of my clerks that you watch, they will teach this book in, in school one day. I had that same sense reading, reading your book last summer mm -hmm. on state street, um, because there's so much here. There's so much vibrancy in history. There's so much nuance. There's so much insight like, like this, we were talking about sort of the the back and forth and, and and you there's there's kind of this bittersweet memory of uh, of your your grandmother in in the south but then the grandmother yes thank you thank you <laughs> uh, but the, but then there's then there's this this behavior bursting into someone's home and dragging them away in reference to to the police sweeps is is how lynchings were conducted there had to be so much terror running through mama's mind that night knowing that her family members, grandma's brothers and uncles, left the house in the same way some never found, others found swinging from, a tr from trees or in pieces in, in a river. Let me just say, wow. And that is so um, forgotten, erased. Yeah. Like this history, there is such a movement right now to just even stop talking about Black history and I don't, I don't even, I don't even have words to explain to you how disturbing it is because not only was it terrible that this terrorism occurred in the first place. Yeah. But now to have the audacity to make people like stop talking about it, which, which is an erasure of, of the history yeah. um, of so many African-Americans. I just, I think this book is a work of fiction, but there's so much history in it. Mm -hmm. And there's so much um, common history. Yeah, like Alice Walker and The Color Purple and- yeah. yeah, but just to mention some of these things that happened um, in the South, like I don't, it's very vague the way it's written, but if you knew the story of Emmett Till, it could even sort of stir up yeah. memories of, of that incident like yeah. it just these are the things that happened in America and like nobody talks about it and it's not written anymore and it if it's part of your family history yeah. it could make you feel like you're crazy because because it's not a thing that's addressed um 
But to these people in this community, it's just common knowledge and it is just their shared history. And it's a continuum. So so I, I sort of wrestled with with this when when I first when I first picked up the book, if if it was a black novel, but it's not. It's it's an American novel with a black perspective. What's a black novel? The industry pigeonholes authors into these into these narrow genres. You know, so you're either you're either one thing or another. And and I feel there's there's that racial aspect that still is exists in the in the publishing world that will will skew someone who's writing about a black experience or their experience as a as a black person as a black novel. Do you think, uh, I know this is your interview, but I just have a question. No, uh, do please. Think, do you think it's because, um, do you think it's because Last Summer on Stage Street has all these tentacles and um, sort of universal themes? Like there's so much that the narrator is addressing that is sort of people problems and, and it wouldn't be categorized as a black novel because it doesn't just stay. Yeah. And very specific themes that are just unique to Black people. Because I, I, I'm just like, when I hear that term, like it's a Black book or it's a Latino book, I'm yeah. just always wondering, like, what what's the criteria? You know, I, I'll I'll invoke uh, the work of of a very very good friend, Tanil Jackson, who's also uh, a uh, I think she's a board member of the uh, Chicago Writers Association. But yeah. Tanil is is a great friend. She's also she's also a book publisher. And okay. so she's always she's always tried to cross over into into that larger market through through promoting black authors through okay. through the through the ideal of of black authors and black voices. I just think that this society will shut the door on a black author because they expect that it will just be a black story. Does that make sense? Yeah, and it's so um, ridiculous. Yeah. But the, but... <laughs> I was just going to say, because black people are people and they're going to have people yeah. stories and people are going to connect with those stories about family and, you know, career aspirations yeah. and love and all that. So I'm hoping, uh, thank you for like, thanks for clarifying. And I'm really hoping that, um, I hope we start moving away from that because Indeed. I remember I remember back in the day when um, filmmakers wouldn't pick up a movie that they deemed a black love story because they said it wouldn't um, white people wouldn't come see it and mm -hmm. definitely overseas people wouldn't come and see it uh -huh. and um, and that that has been dispelled and debunked over and over again so yeah. I'm hoping in literature we will stop sort of pigeonholing writers of color because they're writing human stories. Specific. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to think that that's changing a little bit. So, uh, Lorelai yeah. and Durga McBroom, who were backup singers for um, Steve Howe and Pink Floyd uh, and the Rolling Stones, they're they're both they're both dear dear friends. They've been they've been on on my my Playtime podcast a, a number of times. Um, yeah. We spoke at length about Viola Davis's performance in The Woman King uh, and yeah. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Widows. How important are these voices to to young women, especially young women of color who are often marginalized in in fiction? You know, I am excited about little black girls reading this book and seeing themselves and or their friends in these girls because I remember a season growing up where like I couldn't pick up a magazine and see women with my skin tone. Yeah. And when that started to change, it just like blew my mind and it made me so happy and it made me just like I felt so seen. And so I just think young people are going to read this book and whether they can point out, you know, um, which girl they identify with, I think they will just be happy that there are four black girls who are very different from one another who are like having a friendship and who have relationships with their, their brothers and crushes on boys at school, just like regular, normal girl stuff. 
I, I said in the introduction that you are not a novice. Uh, you earned an MFA in creative writing at Columbia College in Chicago. Did you always know that you wanted to be a writer? I always knew that I liked writing and had some talent, but um, I wanted to be an attorney until I was a senior in high school. And then I went to college and studied athletic training because I liked science and basketball at the time. Uh (laughs) And so I have always uh, been involved in the arts. Like it went from writing to drawing cartoons to playing musical instruments. And then back in college, the thing that came very easily to me um, was English because I'm a very social person. I was having a great time in college, but not necessarily having great grades. And my advisor said to me, have you considered being an English major? Because all of your A's are in English. And then we had the conversation about how like it comes very naturally to me and it's fun. And then I switched over to English and started taking writing classes. And that's where like, I really started to think about myself as a writer and think of it as a profession, mm-hmm. um, but then you still don't think you will be in this moment. It's like, I write things and sometimes they win short story competitions or get published, but like to do this for a living, it's a dream and it's a dream come true. We, we talked with a former teacher of yours, Sean Shiflett. Do you ever <laughs> hear him when you're in front of your own students? And, and, and by the way, uh, Sean doesn't know that I'm a- asking you this question. so Sean Sean taught at Columbia while I was there for Uh undergrad and grad school but I never actually had a chance to have a class with him but you know what's funny Sean um the story workshop methodology that Sean's parents sort of founded well John Schultz sort of founded it um I use it all the time in in my like workshops. I teach at Bennington College, prestigious school, prestigious MFA program, amazing. Mm-hmm. And I I'm encouraging my students to see to see these scenes and I'm encouraging them to lean into place and all that comes from Columbia College. And so I definitely hear my teachers and their coaching of like how to write a scene and how to really sort of see what you're telling and how to write it in a way that's like, you know, it's the whole show don't tell, but like at Columbia College, they take it to a whole, a totally different level. And it's just like very much about what you smell and what you see and, you know, how our characters move in their bodies. And so when I teach, I definitely hear my Columbia College like teachers uh, in my head and I'm sort of passing that on (laughs) to the next generation of writers. There can be a great deal of pressure in what's coming next for for especially a new author. Can she execute again? What direction will she go? Audience expectation. How how do you deal with that sort of pressure? Bill, I'm not worried about that. <laughs> that's Actually, good. That's wonderful. I have so many things that are all backed up because I spent 15 years working on this manuscript. And but what I've had to tell myself is that there is no rush. I took my time with this book Uh so that I could really have a manuscript that was clean. And I said everything I needed to say. And these characters really got fleshed out, you know, so I'm not in a hurry also, last time on Stage Street, every time I think I'm done with like, you know, the book tour and promoting it, it really just has a life of its own. And mm-hmm. I've decided to just really enjoy the season of promoting this book and having all the conversations that, you know, people want to talk about it. I'm here to talk about it. And it's just, um, I just found out the other day I'm a finalist. So first you're long listed and then you, you know, if you're fortunate enough, you're a finalist. I'm a finalist for a Pen America Open Book Award which wow. is um, this incredible honor, um, huge financial prize, a residency at um, a castle in Umbria, Italy, a sticker wow. on your book, like a huge deal. And so I just think right now, last time on Stage Street is very much, I very much want to give this book its time and have yeah. all the conversations and just let it make its way into the hands of as many readers as possible. Mm -hmm. So I'm not worried about the next thing. Um, I just want to make sure that I am in the appropriate season. And this season is giving last on State Street all the shine it deserves. Are you you finding any unexpected 
places where where the book has has been been read or or people that that are reading the book that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect that 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 they would pick up this this book yeah definitely uh mostly people who don't read books at all so yeah i have um a friend at church his sister's father-in-law stay with me <laughs> um older white guy from middle of nowhere america who like does not spend his pastime reading novels definitely not novels about little black girls from chicago <laughs> he happened to be visiting them the book was on the table he read it in one night wow people who don't read books because they're busy uh -huh. and they tell me i read this book in two evenings yeah. So it really is. And I really kind of set out to write a book that anyone could pick up and read, like yeah. not using language that's too like, you know, highfalutin and just really kind of keeping it basic. And, and I actually think there are some oral storytelling aspects of how I wrote this book. Uh -huh. When you listen to the audiobook, it really does. It, and I think I got it from Zora Neale Hurston um, from Their Eyes Are Watching God. It really has this sort of story within a story feel to it. That yeah. Like someone sitting down and they're just like, let me tell you what happened. And I think because it is so conversational and the language is just so like stripped down, it really is a book that anyone can pick up and read. Yeah. It's, it's wonderfully written. It definitely pulls you through from page to page to page. Uh, and, and, I, I I've been through it a couple of times. I I couldn't put it down any any of these times. And I and I'm I'm, I'm very serious. I, I feel that this book will be taught in in schools at at some point. And I uh, hope so. Yeah, I really I, hope so. That would be incredible. That'd be and, incredible. But I I thank you for inviting me to have this conversation with you. Um, this is and for the Chicago Writers Association's um honor of being chosen book of the year. I just my I can't express my gratitude. Toya Wolf is an award-winning writer. Her debut novel is Last Summer on State Street. Her website is toyawolf.com. You can follow her on social media, on Facebook, at Twitter, at Toya Wolves, to stay, uh, stay up to date on all the uh, latest author news and literary updates. Also on Instagram, uh, .com, at Toya Wolves, also. Uh, and we will link to all those sites in the notes. Magnificent. Thank you, Toya. This was thank you. Now is the time to join Chicago Writers Association. It's open to writers and authors anywhere in the world. Unlock a wealth of writer and author resources, programs, and benefits for just $25 per year by visiting chicagorights.org or click on the link in the notes below. Chicago Writers Association membership, by the way, makes a great gift. Support this podcast by simply clicking the subscribe button to receive notification about all of our upcoming episodes, upcoming events, and programs from the Chicago Writers Association, chicagorights.org. Our theme song, Midnight Ride, is courtesy of Dino Lovchich. Find Dino's music on YouTube and on Spotify, just like this podcast from the Chicago Writers Association, which is also available on Apple Music and at chicagorights.org. Visit our website, chicagorights.org. The Chicago Writers Association serves as a resource for inspiration and knowledge about the art, craft, and business of writing, and welcomes published and aspiring authors and short story writers from anywhere in the world. Visit chicagorights.org for details today. Chicago Writers Association is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You've been listening to Chicago Writes, a podcast of the Chicago Writers Association. I'm your host, W.C. Turk. Links to our featured guests are in the notes below, as well as links to the Chicago Writers Association. Until next time. <laughs>